Hey, we want to welcome you today. And uh, it shows my age, very white. We want to say hello to those that are watching online. And of course, one of our campuses here in the Austin area, maybe in Italy, Mozambique. And then, of course, 12 correctional facilities. We bring celebration, all a celebration to those correctional facilities because each one of those inside of those prisons are VIPs. I really do believe the Lord has great things in store for everyone. And so Celebration Church here at Westinghouse, can we say hello to everyone that is joining us online? It's a little loud, a little echoey. If you guys can cure that sound, it just seems like a little feedback today. So today we are going to conclude a message series that we've been talking about over these last three weeks, and of course, this is the third week, and it's entitled, A Church That Looks Like Heaven. And it's a vision series. Number one, I've been kind of giving you some thoughts about vision. Come on, say the word vision. Because I think vision is vital to everyone's life. Without vision, the Bible says people perish. It's a life and death matter. Vision is imperative. And so, we're talking about vision a little bit, but we're, we're also talking about our church because it's important for us to have, yes, not just a vision for us personally, but we also need to understand the vision corporately. What is it that God has for the church and not just Celebration Church, but for the big C church? But, but the reality is, is that in times of crisis, and I think all of us would agree, there's a lot of crisis in our world today. There's a lot of crime crisis. We could talk about financial crisis. Just a lot of, a lot of questions, a lot of concerns. There's a lot, of, a lot of issues that are facing people, facing our world, facing Europe. Who knows what might take place in the next several days? But nothing is more important than vision. Nothing is more important to a family than vision. This is why we pray for these families today. This is why it's important for teams to hear from their coach. What is the vision? What, what's, what's the goal? What's the target? What's the direction? It's vision, honestly, that cuts through the crisis. Whenever Israel lost their vision of God, they gained a vision of fear. See, you're going to get a vision of something. And throughout the Old and New Testament, whenever there was the loss of vision, or whenever vision became cloudy, that's when the chaos, the confusion, the fear began to arise. The, the presence or absence of vision is a turning point. I think we've all been a part of a company, and I'm sure that we've all had this experience that when, when a new management team came into that company, depending on their vision, it affected the climate, it affected the culture. When I first moved to New Orleans, after I left LSU, moved to New Orleans to go to, at that time, seminary in preparation to prepare for the chaplaincy in the military, thinking I was going to be a, a naval chaplain, which was my goal, and I wanted to be assigned to Marine Corps units, and my brothers are both career military men, general, colonel. My dad served in World War II, and I got saved basically out of a locker room at LSU. So all I knew was dudes. All I knew was being around men. Those, those kinds of environments were what was normal and, and actually, I think, designed for me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to leave uh, after LSU. Then I'll become a chaplain in the military. And then, and then I began to realize the narrowness of the chaplaincy and the narrowness of what the military was really, frankly, putting upon those chaplains, what they could do and what they could not do. And even my brothers, the military men, said, Joe, you would 
probably go crazy if you were a, a chaplain. doesn't mean that there's not those that are called for that. Thank God there are. But I rerouted, and, and all that to say is that I went because I now needed to have some employment. I went to work at Coca-Cola, and I was a Coke salesman in New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, they put me in the worst part of New Orleans. That year, they had some 600 murders in my area where I sold Coca-Cola. If you ever saw a Coke truck going 700 miles an hour on Martin Luther King or 2nd Street, dry, wherever, listen, that area, you knew it was me. I was, I was just afraid. And, uh, but I was, I was hired by Coke and, and because of some family and friends that were with the company for a long time. And the Freeman Company had owned the Coca-Cola bottling company forever in the New Orleans area. And then it was bought out by the large corporate entity, CCE, or one of the big conglomerate groups of Coke. And it changed the vision and it changed the culture. And it changed the spirit of the people. And instead of enjoying the family-like culture that they'd had for 40 years, or however many years the Freemans had owned it, overnight the addition or the presence of that kind of vision robbed the people, robbed the team of life. And that's why it's important for all of us to say, Lord, every morning you should wake up saying, God, I want, I want your vision for my life. I want, I want your vision for today. I want your vision for my family. I want your vision for my marriage. Because the vision, whether it's a true vision or a lack of vision or the right vision or wrong vision, can literally be the turning point. It can literally be the turning point and how to navigate, especially during crazy times and, and changing times. And, and all that to be said, I I've wanted to talk about our vision as a church, and we've been talking over these last several weeks about just three big pictures and three big ideas. Today, I want to cover the third one, and this is, I want to talk about the vision, the vision that a church must have, and that is the church that looks like heaven has to have included in its vision the next generation. The truth is, most churches, the average churches in America, the average are either shrinking or they're growing old. And usually they go together. They're shrinking and they're growing old. We started this church 21 years ago. And one of the very first statements that's on our walls and our offices that is going to be a part of our church forever, part of our DNA, is that we are going to be a church that raises up the next generation. What you see on this screen and what you see on this platform I get it. For a lot of you, it's like, hey, I don't need all of this. In fact, Pastor Joe, I'm just not used to this, these screens and this kind of sound that, that we have, or even this kind of facility or wherever one of our campuses are. And I get that because the reality is, is that the older you are, the less you need. You can't see anymore anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and you can't hear anymore. It doesn't matter. And frankly, I think the older we get, the less toys we need. The things that we used to think we had to have growing up, we don't need them anymore. But it's not about you. Yeah. And it's not about me. The sign that you're maturing, the sign that you are honestly growing in God, is that you quit living for yourself and you live for other people. In other words, it's not about pleasing yourself. The Bible says don't just live to please yourself, but live to please others. And when I think about that, I think about the next generation. Because the next generation, guys, 
is not like many of us or many of you who were raised in a Sunday school by, by Sister Marge or Maggie or Peggy. And they usually probably in that Sunday school room taught you on a felt board. How many remember the Sunday school classes with felt boards? Do you think felt boards are going to compete <laughs> with these screens? But I say it like this. Do you think your children were raised on felt boards? No, they were raised watching movies. They were raised watching cartoons that were not Bugs Bunny. <clears throat> and it was certainly not the Three Stooges. I grew up in the era where every morning I went to school. Before school, my preparation was the Three Stooges on Ted Turner's station every morning in the 70s. And of course, our cartoons were sad and pathetic. And, but the Three Stooges, I'll be honest, I think we need more Three Stooges in our world today. And you may say that's violence. I don't think so. I, I think that's just the law of life. Anyway, these children, though, were raised on Pixar. This generation has been watching movies and cartoons that costs $200 million. So then they go to church. And if they're not careful, and if we're not careful, they'll go to church after watching whatever movies they've been watching or cartoons they've been watching all week long, whatever the media world has been throwing at them, and that's strong. And then they come to church, and it looks like we're nowhere near the generation that they live in. It's like a whole different planet. And I'm not saying that it's always about trying to out win the generation by, by, if you will, beating the competition. But the reality is there's a lot of competing forces in our world today. And we've got to continue to stay strong. And we've got to be a church that is not going to give up the next generation. Watch what he says in the book of Habakkuk chapter 1. He says, oh Lord, how long? Have you ever said that to the Lord? I love this. How long, O oh Lord, will I call for help and you don't say anything? He just begins this whole chapter. Lord, I'm crying out. Notice what he said. I cry out what? Violence. In other words, God, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of destruction. Yet, God, where are you? And he goes through, and I don't have time to read all of the scriptures in chapter 1, but as he cries out, he says, Lord, help us. And then he talks about the iniquity that it was in the nation. He talks about the wickedness that was in the nation. He talks about the strife that was in the nation. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He goes into chapter 1, he talks about the lawlessness, the refusal of of a generation that is not keeping laws. How many know we have a problem in our country today that doesn't want to keep the laws that have been written? We don't need more laws. Just keep the laws that have already been enacted. He goes on to talk about the injustice, how laws are not being kept, and there's a lot of injustice that is happening. He talks about the violence. He talks about the arrogance. He talks about the fear, the fatigue. And then if you look at this chapter, and if you look at the beginning of Habakkuk, then God speaks to him. Then the Lord answered me. And notice what the answer was. Vision. Vision. See, a lot of the problems that you have, it's a vision problem. 
The problems that I think might be going on in your home can be solved with a vision, a revelation. Or maybe it's been the lack of vision. It's been the lack of revelation. And now you're having to try to figure out how to get out of this hole that would have never been there had there not been an original vision or revelation. 21 years ago when we moved to this church and moved to plant this church, we had a vision. And someone stopped me this week. In fact, it's a a fellow pastor from this area. And he said, I've watched you for 21 years. You've never moved from the original vision. And it's only a testimony to my wife, number one. She wouldn't let me. (laughs) And number two, notice we wrote it down. Record the vision. Now watch what he says. Inscribe it on tablets. Write it down on iPads. It's literally what the Hebrew word there, tablets, (laughs) mean. And then he says, for the one who reads it can what? Can run. For the vision is yet to come. It has an appointment. Now, it's going to happen. It hastens towards the goal. It won't fail. But, like we were singing this morning, he won't fail. But it looks like it's tarrying. It looks like it's not coming to pass, though it tarries. Though it seemingly is delayed. Wait for it. It will what? It will certainly come. It will not delay. Notice what Habakkuk was telling us about vision. Number one, vision, vision has to be clear. Vision has to be clear. Write it down. Write it down. In other words, can you write your vision on a piece of paper or on a napkin, as some leaders would say? Can it be communicated? Is it known? Is it understandable? Is it in a language or a dialect that the rest of the team or the family can understand? This is what we're doing here today. Number two, he says it, it must include the next generation. Because what he's saying is, write it down so that what? The ones who read it, or those who are going to be a part of it, or the next team up can run. Because if the vision's not known, if the vision's not clear, then who will run with it? Who's going to join? Who's going to be a part of it? Some of you are here for the very first time to Celebration Church. Maybe you've been coming for these last three weeks trying to figure out and shop maybe for a church, and rightfully you should. I tell anyone and everyone that is new to a church or checking out a church, you can't just check out a church by one week. There requires weeks. It's like dating. It's like you need to go to a church at least four times in a row. Because if you marry that girl after the first week, I'm just going to tell you, you're not knowing what you're going to marry. Or you may say, boy, that first date, it wasn't a good date. But then the next week, you're like, wow, that girl was hot. I'm not saying this has happened to me. I'm just telling you, I've read your emails. You'll never know about a church unless you visit at least four times. Because you've got to see it. You gotta, but I would even take it a little bit further. It's even more than that. It is probably one of the most important decisions you'll ever make on the planet. Where will you place your life? What church are you going to join? But let me just tell you, don't date the church forever. You do have to, at some point, put your roots down. 
at some point you have to marry. So he says, write it down, make it clear, make it understandable. And then, of course, he says, understand about vision. Vision takes time. Vision doesn't just happen overnight. Vision, vision is something that you may get today, and it may impact you today, but you have to be prepared for the tomorrows and the tomorrows, and the tomorrows, and though there are tomorrows, and there will be many tomorrows, though it tarries, you got to just wait on it. There's a lot of things that we were waiting on for years that we are just now beginning to see in our church. Things that Lori and I have always wanted, but we're just now seeing it. But here's where I want to just kind of land, and this is interesting. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, now he says, write the vision so that the next generation or those that see it will run And then he says this, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. I submit to you based on Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 that the vision was necessary because also there was a gap. And there was a gap between the old and the new. And there was in Israel at that time, because he's addressing this issue of pride, there was a group of people in the body that said, we don't need to change. And God, I believe, calls people like that proud people. I believe that's a spirit of pride that says, we're good, and we don't need to change, and I'm there, I've arrived, I don't want to try, I don't want to taste. I don't want to examine. I don't want to go. I don't want to move. I want to keep everything the same. I do believe there is a root of pride in that kind of mindset that says the old is better. The good old days. They weren't good days then. You're drinking something. Or you're just dreaming. They weren't good. They weren't as good as you thought. And the reality is, is you're living in 2021. You're not in 1912. You are the young people. You are. I am the young people. We are that next generation. And what he is saying is, as he gives out this challenge of writing down the vision, he says, but there's a group of people that don't want the new vision. There will always be in every organization a resistance to change. And he goes, that kind of spirit, his soul is not right within him. What was the issue with Israel? What's the Israel's problem when it comes to their salvation today? They can't receive this child or this life in Jesus. They can't accept this man being the Savior. Now, they're believing for the Savior. And God sent the Savior by many convincing proofs. He showed who he was. But Israel said, no, can't come like that. We don't want this man to rule over us. He won't look like that. He won't come by that way. He's not going to do what he did. He's going to come as a king. He's going to come as a ruler. He's going to come giving off great impression. But that wasn't how Jesus came. He came in humble, riding on a donkey. He came in in a way that Israel did not like it. 
He came in, frankly, he came in as a servant. And they could not let go of their ideas, their concepts. They had to have it their way. All the way to the end. Let his blood be on us. All the way to the end, they said, if you'll just come off that cross, then we'll believe in you. Greatest miracle that Jesus would not perform is coming off the cross. Because how many are thankful he thought about us? And he knew he had to die to save the world. But I really do believe Habakkuk is really dealing with an issue. And this is why churches grow old and they grow stale and then they begin to shrink. Many of you probably drove by several churches that were one time full and now not just because of COVID, but, but they're no longer barely able to open the doors. Or when they do open the doors, there's barely anyone there. Hello, hello, hello. How many know of a church like that? There are thousands and thousands of churches that were once full. And it lost its vision. See what can happen to a church that is started by the plan. You're pastored by the founder of this church. The typical life of a church goes with the life of the founder. The first 10, 15 years, there's growth and it increases. And then in those 15 to 10 to 15 years, maybe 20 years, it begins to plateau. Because that founding pastor is in his 20th plus year, like we are now. And then it's got a good base, it's got a good solid foundation, it's got good givers, it's got a good budget, it's able to do what it's able to do, and, and it's all good. And then the group that has been with the pastor, they're all beginning to now be empty nesters like we are. And then it starts to plateau and it hits that 20 to 30 year mark and it just kind of rides that wave. And then in that 30th year, and of course even before then, it just begins to dwindle. And then as it dwindles, so are the people that were a part of that vision. And what does not happen is that there was not the raising up of the next generation. In other words, we just thought it would be around forever. And one of the things that we have a responsibility to do as believers is not to just think that it's going to be around after us. That we have a responsibility to make sure that the next generation is set up for a win. I believe that the righteous, as he says, the righteous live by faith. They live by this life. They live by this reality that, that there's another generation that's coming up that needs to be prepared. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at this principle. He says, Paul writes to Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice what he said. Timothy, I taught you. I imparted you. I believed in you. Now what I want you to do is impart and believe and give what has been given to you away to faithful people, to the next generation, so that they in turn will teach and train and impart and give it away to the next generation. Notice what he's saying. This thing has to have an enduring thought, an enduring vision, an enduring program, if you will, a system that Paul recognized from, I believe, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, he gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up. He gives people these callings, these governmental offices, the responsibility to equip 
people, the next generation to do the work of the ministry. The fastest way off of our team is what I'll say to our staff, is for you to do the ministry. When you're doing the ministry and not equipping others to do the ministry, you're a bottleneck to this church. If I've hired you to be over, for instance, ushering or over the doors of the front door of the church, and I see you working those doors, you're the one working the doors and you're working all those doors. You and your wife and your three kids are working the doors. And thousands of people are walking past you and you're working hard. And there's no one else at the door except your family and your cousins because you've asked them and you've begged them to come help you do your job. What you're not doing is raising up the next generation of door holder. You're a bottleneck. And you know how many people walk by going, I wish I could hold that door. But that proud spirit doesn't let anybody else in. You see, most of the churches, the reason why they grow old and they shrink and they die is that the old people didn't want to give up their seat. They didn't want to give up control. Most churches are controlled by mafias. <laughs> They're gangs. Most churches that are dying and old and are shrinking are gang churches. How many know what I'm talking about? There's a gang. There's a family gang. And if you mess with that gang, you're dead. You're not coming back. You'll disappear. And that gang will choke the life out of that church. That's a proud spirit. That's what he's saying. His soul, the soul. I, how, many want your, how many want your church, soul, the soul of your church to be right with God? And to be right with God means that our life, as it's been blessed and as we have been a blessing for these last 21 years, we've got to figure out how can we make sure that the next generation is not forgotten. But not just forgotten. But that the next generation knows that this is their church now. I was given at an early age a belief by my parents. A belief that I could do anything. At 11 years old, I was babysitting kids that were 15. And it wasn't just by my parents. It was the neighborhood parents that said, I know your son is 11. My son is 15. But your son can babysit my son. And I would go to these homes. I was living in St. Louis in particular. And I remember putting these kids to bed. They were 14, 15-year-old boys. And it's like, you go to sleep right now. Oh, I'm going to whip your booty. This was in 75. You could do this back in the day. Some of you are like, no, back in the day is now. Anyway, um, yeah, amen. And I remember going and putting these kids to bed and babysitting them and being their parents for those two hours. I'm like, mom, how did that happen? How bad was the baby spirit supply? That they had to have someone younger than them. They said, Joe, your life, you're, you've been mature. We, you, we never had a cause that you would do anything that you weren't supposed to do. I was at 15 given a car. My mom and dad bought a car and that was, we, mom and I shared it, but it was mostly my car. And at 15 years old, 15, 15, I wanted to go back to Atlanta. We were living in Louisiana. I wanted to go back and see my friends in Atlanta. And my mother let me drive. For two weeks, I was able to go back to Atlanta at 15 years old on my own drive 500 miles to go see my friends for two weeks. This is before cell phones. 15 years old. Take a trip halfway across the country. Spend two weeks with my friends. Didn't talk to my mom or my parents probably, maybe once in those two weeks. 
I never thought about just driving away. But my parents believed in me. My parents raised three leaders. But I want to give you those principles before we go. Watch this. I want to just set up this story. It says that Elisha the prophet, 2 Kings 9, called one of the sons of the prophets and said, I need you to go gird up your loins and you're going to take this flask of oil, not bourbon, this flask of oil in your hand and I want you to go to Ramoth Gilead and when you arrive there, you're going to find Jehu. You're going to search for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, who started a Nagiri and sushi restaurant later on, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers. Notice the command. Notice the searching and the pulling out. You pull him out of his relationship with his brothers, and then you bring him into an inner room, and then you're going to pour that oil on top of him, and you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, you are not just a captain. You're not just a leader. You're going to be the king over Israel. And then he says, and then open the door and then run for your life. Do not wait. So the young man, the servant of the prophets, went there and he came and behold, there were these captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, well, which one? They're probably playing cards. They're probably playing boo-ray. And uh, there's a word for you, captain. Oh, yeah, Who? You. It's you, Jehu. It rhymes. And he arose and he went into the house, into that inner room, and he poured the oil on his head and he said to him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I've anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And you're going to strike the house of Ahab, your master, and that I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. In other words, Jezebel and Ahab, this Bonnie and Clyde of the day, are going to pay for it. And the whole house of Ahab is going to perish, and I'm going to cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the house of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and no one is going to have, there's not even going to be a body left to bury. How many know you don't want to mess with God? Then he opened the door and he fled. Jehu then came back to his friends, verse 11, and one said, well, what happened? What took place? Well, he goes, you know this crazy, you know this crazy Israel light, this prophet, this madman came, and you know how he just speaks all of these words. And they said, it's a lie. Tell us now. And he said, thus and thus he said to me, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. The Bible says they began to take off their clothes, literally their garments, and begin to declare, you are king, Jehu. You are king. From this story, when it comes to the next generation, I want to give you a couple thoughts. Number one, a church that looks like heaven believes in the next generation. Really simple. Because there's a lot of anger at the next generation right now. There's a lot of frustration at the next generation. I get it. I have three in my family. I have three boys. I get it. I understand it. That there can be frustration, especially when it comes to the level of maybe work, when it comes to the level of, of sacrifice. My boys do now, I will say, they work hard. It hasn't been that way their whole life. But they get it. And I think what we have in a suburban world is the work ethic has been lost. Understand something. 
a suburban world. The city world has killed the work ethic. How many remember where you were raised in a home where your mom and dad said, go get those chicken eggs this morning? When's the last time you were told by your mom to go get chicken eggs or go out there and fix this or go out there and take care of that problem? Or maybe at 10 years old or some of you were five years old, you were given keys to go and to move that tractor. In Louisiana, you can get a driver's license at 12. When I moved to Louisiana, you can get a hardship license at 12 because farmers needed their kids to drive the tractor. We don't have that kind of lifestyle anymore. But I want to just say, but we have a lot of angry people at the next generation. What are you angry about? You raised them. That's your fault. Ah, my kid is not doing this. My kid's not doing this. Well, why do you let them? You're really mad at yourself. You haven't followed through. You haven't made it a point. What you find in Jehu and what you find with the prophet Elisha and the pulling out of the discovery of the next generation that's going to take off the head or take off the life of Ahab and Jezebel was that there was an intentional belief that the next generation had to happen. The next generation had to handle it. We who are strong should bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves, but we are to lay down our lives and to please the neighbor for his good and edification. Therefore, we to accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. What kind of people are going to follow you who are aware that you're mad at them? What child wants to be in a home that is filled with anger and frustration? What's attractive about that? Hear this. People grow into the conversations that others have about them. Listen to me. People grow. Children grow into the conversations. They grow according to the conversations that they will hear about them or that is which is happening around them. If they don't have their own belief, they need you to believe in them and they will live or they will borrow your belief until they experience it themselves. That's important. Number one, we've got to believe in the next generation. Number two, a church that looks like heaven calls out the next generation to greatness. Calls them out. Calls them out. In other words, you're not called to just sit here in this group, Jehu. He says, you go and you search and you pull them out of that room. You pull them out of that card table. There's one of our young men on a staff right now, Gabriel Soto. Been in our church, been on our team for many years now. Works in IT. Family's a part of our church. First time I ever saw, met, and laid eyes on this man, he was a bartender. Downtown Round Rock. And I was having dinner, Lori and I, with his mom and dad. And I said, doesn't your son work here? And he goes, yeah, he's a bartender. He's right over there. And I walked over to that bar. This is some 18 years ago or so, 17 years ago. And I said, your life is not about bartending. Your life is about God. And he wasn't even walking with God. Didn't even believe in God. I said, this is not the life that God has called you to. You need to get out of this bar business and you begin to serve God. He comes to church the next weekend. We watched the process. And now he's been in our staff for what? 10, 12, 15 years. And it wasn't me. It was just God calling him out. But God used me to call him out. You've got you've to call out. If you're, listen to me, this is probably as much about parenting as it is about our church raising up the next generation. 
But it's the responsibility of leadership to pull, to call. Yes, it's a form of recruiting. How many know Jesus was a recruiter? Jesus went about, hey, follow me and I'll do what? I'll make you. I got a plan for your life. I was listening to a testimony of a football player with the University of Alabama. And he was recruited by everybody. He goes, why'd you go to Saban? Why'd you go to Alabama? He says, when you sat down and talked to Nick Saban, he had a plan for your life. He says, I know what your plan is. You want to be in the NFL. You want to graduate. He goes, I have the plan to make you graduate, and I have the plan to make you successful in the NFL, and we will win a national championship. He goes, I signed on the dotted line. They won a national championship, a couple of them, and he was the number one draft pick for his football team. That's what we need today. Not more, not more Nick Sabans. Listen to me. Nick Saban left LSU. We don't need more Nick Sabans. <laughs> unless he comes to LSU. Unless he comes to LSU. But what I need, no, what God needs, I'm, I'm curious. How many are over, over 30 years old? Let me see your hand. You're over, you're over 30, male and female. It's now time for you to start pulling out the greatness. I need, I need people who will disciple people. I, I, we don't need a discipleship program because kids don't want programs. I don't want a program. Lori and I were invited and we signed up. We were supposed to be at this program of this conference this past week. And when we looked at the program, we just, frankly, we had to just bail. We just, we, we gave money to it, but we just, we pulled ourselves out of it because it was a program. I don't need that. And it's wonderful. It's great. But I just, we, we backed out of it because it just, it just, for us, it wasn't the time. And I'm telling you, this generation, they want more than just a program. And what Jehu found was this prophet pulling him out, this, this call, come out of this world. Number three, a church that looks like heaven isn't afraid to give power. Or you can say it like this, a church that looks like heaven isn't afraid to give the keys after training and development. In other words, he pulled Jehu out and he goes, listen, I'm going to anoint you with this oil. But what you're going to be given by this anointing oil, it's a type in a picture, you're going to be given authority. You're going to be given the keys. You're going to, you're going to, drive, you're going to, be invo- you're going to run this department. You're going, to, you're going to be the one that God is going to, you're in the killing Jezebel department. You're going to go and you're going to lay down Ahab and take down Jezebel and you're going to be king. And this little guy's like, what? But he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it. In fact, that's why he came back in. They said, what did he say? He goes, I'm going to be king. You know how these guys talk. These people on Christian television, it's just a bunch of false prophets most of the time. I think he was watching Christian television. And what he was given was authority. What he was given was not just, you run the children's department. You're going to, you're going to be here. You, no, you just stay right there. No, no, no. The children have to be. The, when I say the 15, the 29, the 30-year-olds, they need, they need to be running a lot of our church. We need to make sure it's not just on staff, but it is in every area of life. Maybe you're a leader of a company. You better ask yourself, are we aging or are we growing younger? See, every healthy church has to grow younger, and it requires keys. It requires power. It requires more than just saying, you're welcome here. It literally means that you are given 
authority. But the proud will say, no, can't receive. Listen, how old was Jesus when he was crucified? 33. Some of you have a hard time receiving from a 33-year-old man. He was a young Jesus. You ever thought about that? He wasn't an old Jesus. He was a young Jesus. Let's not forget. Some of you are triple his age. Not many. Ken Schiller, a couple of other guys are. But most of us are probably, a lot of us are now at that double. I'm, I'm 57. I'm a lot older than Jesus. And at this age, I think I have something to tell you, Jesus. Guys, never forget, we serve a young Savior. A fresh Savior. And so what we have to make sure is that we stay fresh. Here's another one. A church that looks like heaven puts their mouth and their money together. <laughs> They put their money where their mouth is. Listen, that oil that they gave and poured out on Jehu was an expensive, costly oil. We can't just say, we love the next generation, and then we don't spend the money. We don't invest. We don't give. We don't give attention to them. Make sure that in parenting or even in our church, I want you to understand, these screens, we know they're not cheap. But guys, let me just tell you something. The next generation walks in, they understand this. The sound, they understand it. Leads me to another one. The church that looks like heaven knows and understands the next generation values relationships. So the prophet Elisha said to the prophet, the son of the prophet, when you go find Jehu, pull him out of the crowd and bring him into the inner room. Because the next generation values one-on-one -on -one connection. They want attention. Parents, they want attention. They want you to know that you value them. That you're willing to leave your friends to be with them. That you put a high value on what this generation wants. It's relationships. Really, this is nothing new. We all want relationships. How many have ever been called out? Have you ever, have you ever had somebody, like I said earlier, have you ever had somebody just pull out or call you out to an individual moment? Have you ever had somebody at work say, hey, can we go to lunch? I just want to spend time with you. You know what that does? See, we all need somebody that will believe in us. But listen, you also need somebody to believe in. When we started this church, it was probably year one or two, Lori, we were struggling. And we were literally 40 people, 30 people, 40 people. It was bad. It was sad. I wouldn't have come either. And a lot of times I didn't. And we are going to this pastor's conference. A couple thousand pastors here in Austin. Friends of ours came in for it. They go, you're going to go to it? I said, I didn't even know about it, but I'll go. So I went with them and we sit in the middle of these 2,000 pastors and leaders in Austin. This is 2001, 2002. And there was a prophet. There's actually a man of God there, Jim LaFoon. And he's got a very prophetic gift. And as he's preaching and speaking, all of a sudden he just stops. And he goes, I have to obey God. And he stops and he says, you, you and that girl right there, you, sir, pointing to Lori and I, stand to your feet. 
we stand and he says, God has called you to the city. This city's yours. There's a lion inside of you. And this city's going to hear a roar out of your church. He doesn't know us. He doesn't even know we're planters. He doesn't know. We could have been working at the hotel, much less <laughs> attending it. And he goes, this city is yours. And he prophesied and continued to go on. And everything that he said has come to pass. But what was necessary, what we walked out with, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the words. It was that God saw me. And that's important that God sees people that you know, but they won't know it unless you see them, unless you pull them out. And we've got to make sure that the next generation understands that we understand. Here's another one. The next generation, a church that looks like heaven has to get out of the way. That prophet, when he gave him the anointing and said, you're going to be the king, when he opened the door and he took off, you know what he was doing more than anything else? Giving room. Giving him room to do the job. Not standing over him, going, no, that's not the way to do it. How many know they're going to mess up? How many know when you tell your son or your daughter, go out there and cut that grass, it's not going to look good. It's going to be every other three feet that they will cut. I told my sons one time, I said, go out there and cut that grass. And they kind of went in a circle, like three, four feet. And then everything else is just, I said, what about the corners? Well, we thought you were going to take the weed eater and do the rest of the yard. And so what can be frustrating is you just don't do it right. I'll do it. And guess what? Yeah. I did it. Or me and my lawn man that I hired to come and cut my grass. <laughs> and then they go and play games for the rest of their life. How many have heard that cycle before? Because we got frustrated. Yeah. We didn't get out of the way. Let it be. It's good enough. Sometimes you're going to have to just let the next generation do it, get out of the way, and it's going to be okay. It won't be the end of the world. And we've got to let them know that they're going to make mistakes. Watch this, Jehu, and I'm closing. So when Jehu came and began the process of getting Jezebel and Ahab out of the office, it says when Jehu showed up, it says, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nibshi, for he drives furiously. When he shows up in his chariot to do the job, that word there means he's a mad, chaotic driver. He has no caution in his drive. How many parents have children that are driving cars early on in their driving career? And you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And you call your friends, get off the road, my son is driving right now. Hey, listen, the next generation will make mistakes. They will make mistakes. Your kids are going to make mistakes. Let them. It's going to be okay. After training, after development, in fact, they gave him words. He told him exactly what would happen. The prophet gave him instruction. He was training him. He was discipling them. He wasn't just giving the keys and telling them to drive. No, he said, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. But then the last one, the church that looks like heaven will see the next generation throw down, and I mean throw down what? Throw down the Jezebel spirit. Yeah. And the Bible says, the worship team comes, the Bible says that Jezebel was thrown out the window. He said, Jehu says, throw her down. And they threw her down and some of her blood was splattered on the wall. 
and the horses trampled her underfoot. Really nice way to end her life. But she was also reaping what she sowed. What I want you to see as I close with this angle, we've got, we've got spirits in our country. We have battles in our country. And what we need to prepare is the next generation to be warriors, to be fighters, to throw down powers and principalities and rulers in heavenly places. We've got to call out the next generation. And part of my job is to reach and to develop and to disciple the next generation. But the other angle of my job is to disciple and to reach you to develop the next generation. I've had people say, Pastor Joe, I want you to be more political in our church. I want you to be more political. I want you to, I want you to go there. Listen, my job is to preach the kingdom. My job is to bring Christ and his kingdom. My region of influence is to stay not in the political region, but the spiritual region. Understand that. That's my job. I am responsible. I may have my political thoughts and my beliefs and my convictions, but my job as a pastor on this platform is to bring the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God. But in that spiritual realm and in my preaching and in the leadership of our church, what do we do? We make people become Christ followers. Or in that process, they become aware of God's kingdom and God's laws. So therefore, in the ways of God, they begin to see the injustices, the wickedness, the evil, the things that are not right, the things that are off. See, they begin to all of a sudden get a biblical worldview. Because if you really want to get down to it, the issue, the view of our world, it's not a biblical world anymore. It's not a biblical worldview. And when you don't have a biblical worldview, your political views and every other kind of view is going to be off. And then if I were to become a political preacher, guess what we'll attract? Political people. And guess what? Then we just become this political rally, making no one better, making no one aware of, if you want to bring it into this way, biblical views, biblical convictions. Do you understand what I'm saying? So then it's just a collection of people that already believe like everybody else. And then you're not growing or expanding biblical worldviews in the hearts of people. Because if they're met at the front door with a political slogan or a political thought or a political belief, guess what? They're out of here. Especially Austin. But what we want people to see is when they see God and their eyes are open. They begin to see the difference between good and evil. They begin to see the difference between what is just and unjust, what is right, what's wrong. They begin to see the difference. And then those that were once far away from God or even far away from a biblical worldview now begin to adapt the biblical worldview of life, of what real life is. And what God says about, for instance, life beginning even in the womb. God says... You're fearfully and wonderfully made, and I've known you in the womb. I know you even before you came out. 
which tells us what is God's view about what? About abortion and about pro-life. He's, he's a God that says it's a baby. It's a life. It's a child. It's a, it's a divine created life. Now, if we became that church that was a rally point every week about abortion, guess who will never walk into this church? The testimony of our church would be that church only preaches about anti-abortion. And guess who will never come here? The abortionists. Who are we trying to see get a revelation? The next generation. And that next generation is not just young people. It's the next generation of people who don't know God. And that's why Jesus came and he says, I preached you the kingdom of God. His first message was the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And their eyes were open to the kingdom. And all of a sudden they began to realize there was pride in their heart. And they weren't living by faith. And the soul was not right because they weren't living by faith as it was in Christ. And the truth was not in them. And they couldn't love the truth. They can't know the truth if they, if they don't know the truth as it is in Jesus. And so all that to be said, I want us to know that for those that are 15 to 30, would you stand to your feet? If you're 15 to 30 years old, stand to your feet. I need a set of keys. Does anybody have a set of keys? Wow, look at this set of these keys. I love this. This says wrecker. <laughs> Those 15 to 30 right now that are standing. These are your keys. I want to give them to you. I want you to understand something. This is what happened when Jehu was in that room. You have a call. I'm not saying that 14-year-olds are not important. Where are my 14-year-olds? Okay, go ahead. Stand to your feet. Everybody gets a gift. Come on, my 14-year-olds. Where are my 13s? All right, where are my 12-year-olds? Come on, give me, come on, where are the 12s? Where are the 10s? Are they in, are they in youth? See, you're not to be at the kiddie table. You're at you're at this place in your life and you're at this place in this world that God says, like Jehu, I want you to throw down some things. I want you to bring down some things. I want you to go take territory. I want you to go and take my name and my kingdom to a lost and dying world. And you may say, ah, crazy words. That's what he tried to say. You know those prophets. They just communicate all sorts of silly things. And all of a sudden they go, what did he say? Now watch this. What did he say to you? He said, I was going to be the king of Israel. When he owned what was declared over his life, and when he verbalized what he was called to do, they took off their garments and began to say, you are the king. You are the king. I need every one of you that are standing to say, I have been called of God. I have been called of God to change this generation. Say that with me. I have been called of God change this generation. Can we all stand to our feet? I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to parents. How many parents are here? How many got some parent principles? 
out of today's message. Lord, as a body, we stand here today in this world at such a time as this and declare we're not going to grow old in our spirit. I may grow old in my flesh, but I will not have an old spirit. I will be young in my spirit. I will be fresh in my spirit. Come on, somebody in this room that is around my age, would you just tell the Lord, I don't want to have an old spirit, Lord. I want to be fresh in my spirit. How many are with me right now? We're, we're not going to be, hey, I believe in grandmas and grandpas and great grandmas and great grandpas. But you don't need to have an old spirit. Now you may talk like that. But the reality is, is that we're also going to say as grandmas and grandpas and great grandmas and great grandpas, you can change the world. And I wish I was with you. And I'm going to rejoice with you. And so, Lord, I pray that on this church and on this day, there will be a fresh spirit. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, in fact, Father, right now, I pray that you will draw them. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Joe, I don't know Christ, but I want to. Would you just raise your hand right now? If you're in this room, you say, I know I'm not going to heaven right now. I know that I'm not right with God. Would you pray for me? Would you just lift up your hand? I want to pray for you, pray with you to receive Christ. If you're here today and you've been backslidden far away from God, thank you, sir, for your hand. Anybody else? You walked in this place cold in your heart. And you're like, you know what? I've had a prideful spirit. I want to live by faith. I'm going to put my faith and my life back into the hands of God. Would you just slip up your hand right now? I'd love to pray with you. God bless y'all. Thank you so very much. Can we all just say this out loud? Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Forgive me. And God, I come to you today by faith that you are the Son of God. You died for my sins. And you were raised from the dead. And you're coming again. And from this moment on, I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, let's thank God.